Welcome to the Eastview Baptist Church Teaching Podcast. We're in a six-week study called Thrill of Hope, where we explore the foretelling of the coming of Jesus and the Christmas story, as well as an introduction to the Gospel of Mark study. We hope you'll enjoy and like, share, and subscribe to make this resource more readily available to those you love. So if you have your Bible with you today, guys, we're going to have the same faith. We're going to have faith to stand and read the Word of God together. Uh, If you have your Bible with you today, uh, if you will, flip to the book of Matthew uh, chapter 1. So again, Matthew uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 25. So once you have Matthew 1, uh, if you will, please stand with me as we read uh, the Word of the Lord together. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged or betrothed to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And now all this took place to fulfill... What was spoken by the Lord through the prophet? See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we're just so thankful to be in your house this morning, God. We're so thankful for a Savior that would come and take on our sin, to take on our flesh, God. And I'm so thankful this morning that your Son, Jesus, had the faith to withstand all persecution, the faith to withstand all trials, God, and to be our righteousness, God. And I'm just so thankful for the sacrifice of the One who is willing to carry my burdens, to carry my cross, God, to carry my shame. And we're just so thankful, Lord, to be able to be your church who are called to proclaim your message. We pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would just intervene in our lives, God, and direct us and guide us to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. So what we have here to begin, guys, is a, I would say, a statistical anomaly But from human aspects and standings, what we have is an impossibility. Right? Would would everyone agree? We have seen the barren or those who may be too old or those who may have uh, different illnesses become with child. But never before in Scripture have we seen and never since have we seen the one who had never given herself in that way, become pregnant to become the the mother and the carrier of God in the flesh. What we have here 
is what we refer to as a paradox. Anybody ever heard of a paradox? Nobody's ever heard. Two people have heard of paradoxes. Look, there we go. Now that you, you see other people, you're willing to say, I know what a paradox is. Right? So a paradox, let me just, for those who may not know, a paradox, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And what I have to introduce you to here uh, kind of came at, at the, the, the curtails of, of what Jesus has said. You, you see, Jesus, when, when prompted on these same kind of miracles, Jesus looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. And in other words, the things of this world do not necessarily make sense when you compare it to the kingdom of God. Why? Because we have flipped the script and attempted to rewrite our way of understanding things. Instead of God being the center of all things, we have put ourselves into the center and attempted to create a God in our image rather than the biblical definition of us being created in the image of God. And so what we have in Matthew chapter 1 follows the story of, of, of Joseph. And we know that Joseph is, as we've learned in the past now, the legal, uh, the, the way that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne. We know that through his mother Mary, uh, that he is the blood heir to the throne of the, the kingdom of David, or the heir of David, or the root of Jesse. And so let me just set the stage for you really quickly because I, I don't, I, we, we talked a bit about this last week. Uh, sometimes we just skip over Joseph, right? We go right to, to Jesus and go right to the improbability and the impossibilities. Understandably so. But there are some context clues that kind of let us know a little bit about Joseph. You see in verse 19, so her husband or her, uh, her betrothed one or the one that she has promised to be wed, to marry to, being a righteous man. And the word here in the Hebrew is a Sadiq. He is one who fears God, a God-fearing man. And when we have a God-fearing man, what does this mean? It means that he adheres to the entire Torah. He adheres to the ceremonial feast. He is a devout Jew. And if you know this then about Joseph, you understand that what he is thinking and contemplating doing in verse 19 is completely within his legal ramifications. It is completely within the religious system in which he has indoctrinated himself. In other words, his coming wife has now become uncommon. What does this mean in today's world? It means that she's going to have a child out of wedlock. And in, in this context, in this clue, uh, in this honor-shame society in which they live, the fate that awaits her is public stoning, which is, in fact, an execution. See, if Joseph decides to follow... The, the, the religious law that he has so closely adhered to, then he is to announce her as a sinner, to take her into the public square, announce her as a sinner. Other Sadiq or righteous men 
would then stone her. She would be executed. So her husband Joseph, a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly. So now we see he is both a righteous man or a religious man, but he's also a man with a heart, a man with a compassion, a man, as, as Jesus said, that loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength, but also loves others as himself. And so he's not wanting to disgrace her publicly, so instead he intends to divorce her secretly. What does this mean? It means that he mars his reputation, he mars his image, but he saves and spares her life. And an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, says, hey, I need you to reconsider this. I know. What I'm asking you to do is to take on sin, to take on shame, to take on your reputation being just completely dismantled. I need you to divorce yourself from the flesh. And I need you instead to live within the will of God. And most of us would say, oh, I would just so quickly do what God calls me to do. But every day we're called to be witnesses in the public square. Right now, currently, your witness in the public square would not cause you death, but rather a little bit of potential ruin to your reputation. Or to be thought, oh, he's a crazy man. He's one of those fanatics. I don't think there's anything fanatical about doing the basics of being a believer of Christ Jesus. And the most basic of responsibilities to a believer of Christ Jesus is to share the faith in which has saved your life. So I want to do some math with you guys really quick. Y'all like math? Alright, that's one you can actually get excited to say, boo, math. And then the, the people in here who have like the CPA mentality, they say, oh, I love math. Right? I, don't, I didn't see anybody get that excited about math. Miss Edna, this is your time to shine. So a year, as we know it in, in the most... Uh, most years is 365 days. We're not going to account for leap years and all this. 365 days. But we know that God gave us a command, and I know all of y'all here, we honor it. It's called the Sabbath. Right? Alright, so now we've got to take 52 of those days away. That leaves us with 313 working days a year. Alright, you may be familiar with this statistic, but it is thought, with a lot of research to prove, that it requires about 10,000 hours to become a master of a skill. Y'all ever heard this research before? 10,000 hours to master a skill. Alright? So there's 24 hours in a day. These are facts, by the way. 24 hours in a day. That leaves you 8 hours for sleep because I know that you're all getting a healthy amount of sleep. Right? And you leave yourself 4 hours for socialization and food skills. Sustaining yourself for life. And so with that in mind, if you were committed... And your vocation was to become a firm and thorough believer and follower of Christ Jesus. You would have 12 working hours in a day. Alright, at that pace, it would take you 834 working days to master the skill of becoming a student of Christ Jesus. Right, what does that look like? 2.7 years at 12 hours a day. So that's not realistic, okay? 
Now figure that most of us have a vocation or a job. So that's eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, and four hours of food or social skills. And that leaves you four hours for skill mastery. In other words, four hours a day you study the Word of God. Four hours a day you pray. Four hours a day you go and share the gospel message with the lost. That requires 2,500 heavily committed, we're going to call this heavily committed days to master the skill. Alright, what does that mean? It means eight years at four hours per day. I know what you're thinking. Caleb, you're not figuring any Netflix time in there for me. Right? Alright, so now let's say you're a little bit above average. Alright? And so let's figure that you spend just one hour a day committed to the skill and the mastery of being a follower and a student of Christ Jesus. That requires 10,000 days to master the skill. Alright, what does that look like? 32 years at one hour a day. Alright, now let's get realistic. Let's, let's get what you're willing to give up. Right? All this is meant for you to examine your heart. Now let's, let's, be, let's be realistic here. You're just a little bit above average. And you're willing to commit 30 minutes a day to studying the Bible, to praying, to going and sharing your belief. In other words, to mastering the skill of becoming like the teacher, Christ Jesus would take you 64 years at 30 minutes a day. Anybody see the problem here? 64 years requires what? A lot of faith, a lot of commitment, a lot of every day in and out. Remember again, this is based on our six-day week. So in other words, six days a week, 30 minutes a day. 64 years. It's why the students of the day or the Talmud of the day were picked up anywhere between the age of 8 and 12 and studied for about four years under a rabbi or a teacher. And then if they were really skilled and could master the skill in four years in the most formative time of our lives at that age, it's when our brain is able to absorb the most. If at four years... They just become proficient enough to become the next generation. Not to be a master of the skill. And so that kind of commitment is the kind of commitment that Joseph likely endured from the ages of 8 to 12 or 12 to 16, somewhere in that nature, to be what we call a Sadiq or a righteous, God-fearing Man, that was the, the, that's what he gave up, guys. All that hard work, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you have to live out this gospel message. You can walk away free and clear. What I'm calling you to do is die to yourself and follow me. Sounds familiar to a certain prompt that Jesus would teach 
His disciples. Almost like Mary and Joseph's teaching that they had received directly from God. It's almost like they taught Jesus. Right? And like He was teaching His disciples the thing, same things that had been ingrained and, and taught to Him. I'm saying all this to, to point you to the fact, where is your current commitment level to following Christ Jesus? Because if it's coming one and a half hours a week, when you come and sit and maybe apply and learn some of what you learn, you're not going to master it in a lifetime. You're not even going to become proficient in a lifetime. To follow Jesus requires an everyday commitment. We got to practice what we preach. All of this is, is leading us back again to Isaiah uh, chapter 7 really quickly. Let me read this for you again. We've read it a couple times. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask and I will not test the Lord. He is attempting to be self-righteous to God. Hey God, you told me not to question God. You told me not to... God is saying, I am the one telling you. Ask whatever and we'll see it. In other words, he wants him to ask for the impossible. It's the same kind of faith that Joshua had to have when God said, ask what you will and I will deliver these people. And Joshua said, if you can just make that sun stand still in the sky, we will destroy our enemy and carry on your kingdom. And God did it. And here we have Ahaz, a self-righteous, not so great king. And God says, ask whatever you want. We're going to see the will of God in your life. And what does he say? Please don't be an Ahaz. Well, you said not to question God. Why would you ever respond that way to God? And Isaiah butts in and Isaiah says, listen... House of David, is it not good enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? And therefore the Lord Himself, look at this, I ask you, God says, I ask you, ask whatever you want, it'll be the will of God. Mm -mm. Why? Because I'm too self-righteous to realize that I require your intervention. I'm too self-righteous to realize that my life requires you to intervene and you to be my God. Ahaz in this statement says, no, I'm fine. I'm the God of my life. And Isaiah prophesies, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive... She'll have a son and name him Emmanuel, which we've just read means God with us. And by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds, which is sour milk, and honey. And for before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings 
you dread will be abandoned. This is the immediate prophecy that he has for Ahaz. We have a dual prophecy here, right? We have a foreshadowing of Christ the King, Emmanuel. And he says to Ahaz, your kingdom is coming to an end. Your reign of man is coming to an end. Why? Because God, Yahweh, God the Father, is not the God of your life. So I say to you, church, maybe you're not committing the amount of time required to master the skill, but are you giving it enough time to be proficient? You realize time is one of our most precious resources. Y'all ever heard... Time's the one thing we ain't getting back. See, Joseph made his decision. This is kind of tucked away here, guys. The same kind of decision I'm ultimately going to ask of you today. Is God the God? Is He the Lord? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? Or is He just a lowercase g? God, who sometimes you come to when you have a, a grocery list or when you have a wants list? Is He the God you give full commitment or is He the God you only come to like a magic genie in a bottle? See, look at verse 25 here in Matthew 1. And we see, but Joseph did not have sexual relations with her. He didn't defile her. He didn't defile himself. She gives birth to a son. And notice some very important phrasing right here. And he named him Jesus. Anybody see that? Everybody say it with me. And he named him Jesus. You realize what just happened right there. Joseph took on all the shame, all the backbiting, everything that would ruin and diminish his reputation. I'm sorry I'm going to use some crass language, but he took on literally what society has called a bastard child. Why? Because God is with us. Joseph didn't care what anybody had to say about him. All he cared about was carrying out the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because the Gospel will cost you everything. Luke as we've seen, recounts the exact same encounter. But again, this one is from Mary's perspective. This one is from Mary's side of things. And there in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we see in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. And to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Again, a Sadiq. He is a righteous man who is of the heritage. We know his is legal. Hers is blood. His is legal. Of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. Could you imagine, guys? The angel of, the God, the angel of God comes to you and says, God has such big plans for you. The Lord is with you. She is to birth a child and name Him what? God is with us. 
The angel comes to her, comforts her, and says, the God is with you. You are to give birth to a child, and he is to be God with us. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Hey guys, anybody ever been visited by an angel? No, nobody? Yes, yeah, so we can't judge her for her, her take on this one, right? Hot take. Angel came to her. She was a little bit torn. And then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, the angel of the Lord says to her, It ain't you, right? It ain't me. But God has somehow found favor with you. Why? Because He is a loving God. And He takes care of those who are undeserving, just like me. And He has favor with those whose society calls an outcast. Those whose society calls misfits. God finds favor with them. As a matter of fact, delivers the world through one. Do you think it was easy for Mary to say, oh, she was having, she was having, God's, God is with her. Society is now against her. You have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. And me and you read that and we just say, yes, Jesus. What you have to understand from the Hebrew, this is Yeshua or Yehoshua. Say, what does that mean? You, you, you familiar with the name Joshua of the Old Testament? So this is a combination of Joshua, right? And what Jesus' name means is that God saves us. Or that Yahweh saves. Jesus' name is literally, guys, salvation. So what's in a name? Salvation. Why is it important to call upon the name of Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior? Because He is salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. John the Baptist actually says, hey, you are the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The question that everybody will be wondering here. It's almost as if you never went to college, but you got a master's degree. Right? Just, it doesn't, doesn't happen. It's almost as if you never played the lottery, but you won the jackpot. It doesn't happen. Why? Because we only see things through man perspective. We only see things through flesh lenses. God with us. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign. But I've never, never done what is required to be a mother. Right? And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The title that John the Baptist, upon meeting Jesus, says, Hey man, you are the Son of God. The angel of the Lord delivered this message that He is to be the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. This is your relative Elizabeth. I'm doing a miracle through her, but it can't touch what I'm doing through you. Why? Because he is to be the one who points to Jesus and says, He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. Now look at this, guys. Remember I read to you from Matthew, Jesus' words for, with God, nothing is impossible, right? Now look at this. For nothing will be impossible with God. The teaching was sticking with Jesus, guys. Why? Because Jesus was a committed servant of God when He came and took on our sin. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He took on our afflictions. All the bad reputations that we inherit. He took on all that and gave us a new name, which is child of God. We are saved through Christ, Christ alone. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. And really quick, I'm going to show you from Scripture, what we've just witnessed, guys, is paradoxical. What, you remember what that means? It means that from human expectations, human standards, there's no way. But with God... Nothing is impossible. Right? And so, Jesus lives out this promise. Picking up in Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it for you. Matthew chapter 5. We have what is known as the Beatitudes. They say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In Jesus' greatest teaching, He comes and says, Welcome to the upside-down kingdom. Welcome to the paradoxical kingdom. All the expectations you have of what a king will look like, flip it on his head. The Roman oppression that you have suffered where a king comes in and leads by force, forget that. Why? Because God is with us. Emmanuel. See, Matthew 5 is the beginning to the introduction of the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. Here we see that the kingdom operates 
on values that are completely contrary to worldly expectations. You know what we call that? A paradox. Welcome to the upside down kingdom. Luke chapter 19. One of Jesus' last moments of, of freedom. Come in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 19, at verse 41, we see as he's coming in, we have the triumphal entry. We have Jesus being Hosanna, God most high, right? And picking up at verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, Jesus looks over Jerusalem. And he says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. As he approaches Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where Passover is to occur, which means the God-fearing Jews have come into the city. And as he comes in, he weeps for it. And he says, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? At some point in time, Guys, there's a moment in your life when God is overlooking you and He says, if you knew in this moment what would bring you peace. It's simple. Call on the name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But now, it is hidden from your eyes. In other words, some will reject the message of Christ and Him crucified. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. Again, speaks of a prophecy that happens in that day and time, but also speaks of a prophecy that comes in the unveiling of the kingdom of God. See, the king, the, the city of Jerusalem did fall somewhere between 69 and 71 AD. It was besieged around all sides. And it fell. And the walls of our lives, guys, are constantly falling down. Do you have the strength to declare Him as both Lord and Savior? Or will you cling to the world so tightly that you will reject Him? And they will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. And because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. I'm going to give you some good news and some bad news really quick, guys. There will come a day you will answer for your entire life. And if you're sitting here right now, you don't get to play ignorance as bliss. If you're sitting here right now, you have heard the gospel message that Christ Jesus would come and die for you. He would take on your sins. He would carry your burdens as far as the east is from the west. And He would be crucified. Be placed in a tomb to bury our sin and shame. And on the third day would rise again as you're resurrected to a new life in Christ Jesus. 
So ultimately, there will come a day of judgment. And now if you sat here and heard this message of Christ Jesus, and you have not given your life to Him as both Lord and Savior, here's the bad news. If that has never happened for you, you you don't get to play ignorance as bliss. Now you will answer for your life. You will answer for your commitment to sin. But there's good news. Christ Jesus died to carry you away from your sin. Christ Jesus died so that you could have new life. That you would have resurrection life in Him. So with all this said, Jesus embodies the paradox. He offers salvation to those who will embrace the kingdom while mourning the consequences for those who would resist. And in this moment, Christ is both celebrating those who have made the commitment to give their lives to Him, and He mourns those who would reject Him. He mourns for those who would be cast to the fire, for they have never declared Him Lord, Lord. So as we reflect on Isaiah's prophecy, and on Mary and Joseph's obedience, as we reflect on Jesus' teachings, we encounter the beauty of the upside down. We encounter the beauty of the paradoxical kingdom of God that defies all logic and reason. And in this paradox of Jesus' kingdom, we find surrender. We find the hope of surrender. We find the comfort of mourning. And we find a blessing in our humility. To be humble is to say, I must decrease and He must increase. So as we head into a time of invitation, I have a couple of prayers for you today. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, don't tarry. Don't wait. Today is the day. If you say, I've heard these statistics now about what it means to follow Jesus, but I just need to know how to start taking those steps in the right direction. I want to witness to people, but I don't know where to start. Let me give you an opening. It is as simple as this. Has anyone told you Jesus loves you? I promise that opens doors. Has anyone ever told you that Jesus loves you? And if they answer you with anger and animosity, as Jesus said, wipe your feet. But if they are willing to hear what God has done for you, what God has done in your life, there's a case up front with 40 Bibles. There's a case right here in this front row with 40 Bibles. I would love to challenge 40 people this week to have a gospel conversation. To give someone the Word of God, which is the truth and the love that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to pray for us really quickly. We're going to head into a time of invitation. Dear Heavenly Father God, we're just so thankful for the sacrifice of Your Son Jesus. That He would die on the cross. and He would die my death. That He would deliver me to new life. God, I just pray that if there's anyone in this place 
in this moment, God, who has never given their lives to you. If there's anyone here who is just worried of what it may look like, what people may think, God, allow them to leave in the faith of Joseph and Mary, to leave behind any kind of reputation or perception of what it, it, it means to be flesh, God, but to pursue you in all things. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.